HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. It's May 6, 2020, and we're doing a special remote recording. It's in the middle of the COVID pandemic for a lot of people, but we're still interacting with our, our great network of, of beer industry folks. Um, this show has been in the works for a while. Many of you know Phil Markowski. Uh, he wrote the book on Farmhouse Ales in 2004, and uh, he's been the, the brewer co-owner at Two Roads Brewery and now um, Area 2 experimental brewery in Connecticut. So he's kind of the lead guest today, and we're going to be talking about saisons and farmhouse and other things that are going on. So I'd like everyone to introduce themselves. I'll say your name. So Phil, just give us a brief intro. Okay, uh, Phil Markowski. I have I have been home, or I started home brewing, uh, God help us, 1984, and I've uh, been a professional craft brewer since 1989. Um, so I've been at this a long time. I've seen, you know, the uh, past boom and bust periods, and uh, I honestly never thought I'd see something close to 10,000 breweries in the U.S., uh, which we were looking at before COVID, and no doubt that's going to have an impact, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I've seen a lot in this industry, but uh, you know, the current climate um, where craft brew is a household word, I, I honestly never thought I'd see. So uh, we've come a long way, to say the least. That's great. And we're going to talk a lot about your book and about Saisons. Next, let's have Anthony introduce himself. Hi, Anthony Accardi, uh, co-founder at Transmitter Brewing, where a uh, small brewery uh, moved to the Brooklyn Navy Yard about a year ago. Um, and on the shoulders of giants, we specialize in Belgian and French-inspired beers, so uh, very Saison-forward and um, super excited to be here with uh with Phil and uh, and BR and, and of course you, Jimmy. Great, thank you, Anthony. And BR, little intro. Uh, hi, I'm BR Rolia, and I'm with Shelton Brothers Importers. I manage our French and Canadian portfolio, uh, as well as uh, New York State. Um, and a long time. Uh, long-time listener and frequent guest of Beer Sessions. That's great. So I just want to give everyone a big shout-out. Thanks for joining us here on the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Uh, you can join and become a member at HeritageRadioNetwork.org slash donate. So here we are. Phil, let's go way the way-back time machine. Um, you were interested in Saison. Tell me about the first Saison you tasted, how you got inspired by it, and some of the thoughts that went through your head way back when. Well, uh I, I hope I'm not bursting your bubble, Jimmy, but I think the first Saison I tasted was one that I homebrewed, and it wasn't what I was in, intending to brew, to be quite honest. And um, it's, It was more of a, a case of, you know, at the time I was a BJCP judge and had judged at, you know, numerous homebrew competitions, and um, was trying to place what this one particular beer should be. Uh, I, I, in retrospect, I'm thinking it probably 
acquired a Britannomyces infection and, you know, basically became super attenuated. So it was very dry, um, you know, much drier than beers that I was used to at the time. And uh, I was looking for a place to, to put it, essentially. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I decided it was. And, you know, I, do, I, do I wish I had a bottle and, you know, go or go back in time and taste it and then decide uh, now where where it should be, uh, what it should be categorized as. But I can't do that. So, you know, just going on memory, it, it was something that it was more this, um, you know, what had been drilled in, into me, this this need to categorize a beer as something on the list rather than, as I would find out later, what the Belgians want to do, which is to make their their beer unique and therefore uncategorizable, if that's if I could make up that word. Um, you know, they strive to make their beers unique for their region, not to fit in with a pre-existing style definition. So it's it's a uh, there's there's lots of contradiction in that statement, and that's the kind of thing I. I talk about in the book as well that the Belgian brewers have a disdain for this whole concept of styles so long-winded answer sorry about that but um, you know my first farmhouse sale if you will legit farmhouse sale was probably Saison DuPont that's great now let's go Anthony what was your first Saison that you tried or farmhouse ale because I know you you've also kind of been really inspired by the that general style yeah absolutely um i'd say like thinking back i think i probably stumbled on a dusty bottle of gen lane um you know 750 green bottle cork and cage at some east village like beer bodega kind of thing and was intrigued by it and uh you know, tried it and was, uh, w- fell in love, basically. Like, I, I loved all the sort of, I can remember, like, it being musky and, like, sort of, um, definitely was an acquired taste, but once I learned to like it, I really loved it. Um, and I, I can't, I'm sure there's still some of that floating around in the U.S. I just have never, I haven't seen it in a long time, uh, which is unfortunate. I would love to revisit that, that beer now. Yeah. And then, Phil, so in your book, you talk about a story that I know. So a little over 30 years ago, Saison uh, DuPont was, was almost extinct, and Don Feinberg of Van Bergen de Wolf uh, followed Michael Jackson's lead and approached DuPont and imported it. Is that what started or saved Saison for America? Get, just give us your reflections on that, and then I'm going to ask BR to talk about the brewers in Belgium who she works with that are making Saison. Uh, I, I honestly don't know the answer to that for sure, Jimmy, but I, I suspect that there's a lot of truth in that that uh, theory because uh, what I can equate to perhaps um, a little better just in my own personal experience would be uh, lambic styles or lambic beers, uh, where I remember visiting Cantillon in in the early '90s. You know, before Shelton began to import them, um, and the locals seemed to want nothing to do with them. My buddy and I went in. My buddy was a home brewer who went over there frequently for business, spoke French French fluently, and. You know, stumbled upon this place and brought the beer back, and we we're all like amazed by it. So we went on this pilgrimage, and the local people we went to our beer cell. The local people weren't drinking it; nobody was drinking. They were older people, and they we expressed interest, and they basically tried to talk us out of uh, of it. So, you know, maybe there was some of that with the farmhouse styles as well. And, you know, I think like a lot of thing in beer in general and craft beer in general these days, and I don't want to, you know, give undue credit to the U.S. beer consumer or the U.S. craft brewer, but 
I do think that that this this importing of these obscure beers styles, whether farm, farmhouse ales or Trappist ales or lambics, whatever, um, was something done largely by Americans. And I think once they hit this market and then craft beer and interest in these exotic beers grew, this was the prime driver of, you know, bringing these styles to uh, really world attention. And obviously people like Michael Jackson who wrote about it and wrote about it passionately, passionately so that you really wanted to know more and seek them out. And then when they became available, that's at least what I did. You know, I, I refer to his books um, just constantly, and that piqued my interest. But, um, you know, I think locally there was maybe a sense of, oh, this is beer for old people. And that's a story that I would hear about from uh, farmhouse brewers when I was researching the book. And since then, that those uh, those are those are the beers for old people. You know, that, that, that was the locals talking where these beers are produced. So there was this rejection of them um, on, for the large part locally. So really it was the, it was the faraway markets that kind of drew attention, expressed interest and consumed these beers to the point where uh, the brewery survived and in many cases thrived. So I would, I would tend to give Michael Jackson and Don Feinberg, a lot of credit for um, resurrecting, if you will, farmhouse ales. And, you know, for me, it, DuPont is sort of my benchmark. That's where I started um, to appreciate these beers. And that was the, one of the first examples I had. That's great. And just when we posted about this show yesterday, a couple of industry people gave you shout outs. Interborough in New York City said, the best book ever. And Lost Loggers said the book that launched a thousand saisons. So BR for me, you know, everyone talks saisons, farmhouse ales, but for a long time, the only stuff that I was drinking was from Belgium and France. Uh, in addition to saison de Pont, many many brands that that you guys bring in through Shelton Brothers. Can you tell us about a couple that that for you have kind of set the standard uh, for, for what that type of beer is? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to describe what that type of beer actually is because as as phil was saying it's more of kind of not necessarily a, a pigeonhole uh type of style but it's 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 pretty amorphous but i i would say one of the breweries uh that i'm drinking right now uh that kind of encapsulates the the saison and farmhouse style would be a uh, blogy from uh southern belgium they're just across the french border um they do use the DuPont yeast. Um, their yeast tends to be a little, or their version of this yeast is now obviously not their own yeast, but um, a little bit fruitier, uh, a little bit more earthy and rustic, but it's just, it's it's a wonderful, um, just the, the La Monuse is their classic saison, just a, an, an amber colored um, phenolic and estuary beer, but without being too phenolic or too estuary, you still get the malt, you still get the hops. Uh, very effervescent, and to me, that that's what a saison should be like, or like a saison Dupont, which I find incredibly classic. I absolutely love that beer. Um, but we have other breweries uh, who do some more farmhouse styles, uh, both in Belgium and France. The the French Beer de Garde, um, uh, De La Seine, Yvonne makes some wonderful saisons, uh, which are very tend to be very dry. He basically follows the almost to the letter what he thought in his chapter that he wrote in, in Phil's book um, on what he thought old saisons would have been like a lot more dry, a little bit crisper than some of the, the more modern interpretations, which I find can skew a little bit too sweet uh, or it's kind of people just throw anything into it and call it a saison or farmhouse ale. You know, let's throw in this spice, let's throw in this fruit um, without really thinking where, uh, you know, the history of the beer and what might or might not have been in it. Great. And Anthony, do you want to take a stab at, so Saison's not really a style. How would you describe it? Saison, farmhouse ales, beer to guard? Yeah. Uh, so for Transmitter, we we don't make a single Saison. We have right now nine different Saisons. Um, 
So it for as a brewer, what's fun about saisons is exactly that that it doesn't that it's such a broad swath of possibility, um, and that in itself makes it fun fun to make. Um, you know, our we have we have sort of silos of beer or families of beer that each has a, uh, some sort of conceit, um, some idea behind it. So the saisons, we don't even use a single saison yeast across the family. We have, uh, I don't know, about like six different saison yeasts that we use depending on the beers and and what what we're after. The um, for for us again, the beer to guard, and this is just uh, this is just as much a, a way um, into the style as anything, but. So our beer to guards tend to be a little bit darker than the saisons, a little maltier, um, and that's that's just but that's just a transmitter, like that's just a way for us to make a category of of beers in our heads, and uh, and it's a way for me to think about a beer style and design around it. But again, there's what's interesting about a saison from a maker point of view is that you don't have to, I, I think it should be dry. Like that's, that's some of, that's some of what drives our beers is a, is a certain dryness. We do still bottle condition everything, which I think helps the beers in general um, for those styles. So even our cans are actually can conditioned. So we naturally carbonate everything that comes out of the brewery, cans, kegs, and, and bottles. Uh, and that allows us to give it uh, brightness and effervescence that I think is um, intriguing and also and, and part of how I interpret uh, that, that world of beer. Um, I like a brightness to, to a Saison um, that comes from the carbonic acid from the CO2 that's in it. Uh, and I think that helps both drive the flavor, the dryness, as well as sort of a, a wine or cider champagne-like experience when you, when you actually are, you know, have a glass in front of you. Thank you, Anthony. We're going to talk a lot more about beer with you. Um, just going back to the book, Phil, um, you got Tommy, Ar Tommy Arthur uh, to write the, the intro um, and his, he quoted, he said, farmhouse beers in the agricultural context, after a hard day of cutting grass in the sun, that's what he wants to drink. Um, just tell us more about when you were writing the book and some of those early, you know, people that you, you worked with on it, like Tommy Arthur, um, Yvonne DeBates. Um, well, you know, uh, Yvonne was, was instrumental because he has a, a, a large collection of, of old brewing texts which are, you know, mostly in French. And there's not a lot that's been written about farmhouse ales, at least saison, from the, the, the Belgian perspective. So what little there was, Yvonne had access to. And, um, you know, he was, he's an academic, he's a historian, he's a passionate brewer and just a passionate beer aficionado so he was like the um you know the perfect storm that that of 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 information of passion and you know of of knowledge and wanting to get everything right so he was he was vital in all this um and and br who who did lots of translation for me including um you know the rigorous task of of translating Yvonne's um, chapter in the book, which he was obviously more comfortable writing it in his native French. And uh, I mean, that was that was key to to translate that works. I was totally helpless in that regard. So thank you, BR, all these years later still. Thank you. You're welcome. You know, Tommy, who who I knew and we, you know, we traded information prior to me researching the book. We, you know, became friendly, even though we're from opposite coasts um we were kindred spirits in that we were um you know into belgian beers and yes at the time into farmhouse beers and and 
at times, Jimmy, just a warning, you may catch me um, being a little defensive of being being cast as the farmhouse ale guy. Uh, typecast is a term I like to use because I, I like beers of all stripes and even beers I don't necessarily enjoy drinking. I love the challenge of brewing them. So just a forewarning that, that, that my defensiveness may arise at certain times regarding farmhouse. But, um, you know, Tommy and I became friends, but, um, yeah, I mean, as far as him feeding me information, that really, it was just that we had friendly conversations a lot. And, uh, truth be told, he, you know, he was chosen by, uh, Brewer's Publications to write the foreword. No, anyways, it was a great introduction. Again, you talked about cutting grass and what it would have been like, you know, working in the fields in Belgium in the 19th century. Um, I love that. And I want to say that I, I too, didn't, I never thought of you as a farmhouse ale guy. Um, I think it was only through this radio show that I knew about your book, probably 10 years after you wrote it. So let's go back to BR. So BR, you were in that process of, you wrote, you did correspondence and translation with, with Yvonne, um, and maybe some others, uh, from French to English for the book. What did you learn from doing it? You know, were there things that you learned or did you feel like you, you, I mean, it's, it's a huge world. Yeah, no, I, I learned a ton at at the time. I was not yet working for Shelton brothers. I knew Dan Shelton. Uh, he lived here in New York city. Uh, and I knew him, uh, and believe it had met Phil as well. Um, I was an avid home brewer and learned, so much and ended up specializing it for a little bit. Um, my husband and I with, uh, Bier de Garde and learned many tips of, of how they were actually made because, you know, as, as Anthony was saying, I think maybe Jean Lan was the only beer that you could find in the U S. Um, when I traveled to France actually, um, and I believe this was before helping with the book, I had gone through a list in the Michael Jackson guide and contacted all these breweries because I wanted to go visit them. And they all were just like, well, no, we don't have visitors. Or remember, I believe it was La Chulette said, "Uh, well, it's cold. It's January. Why would you want to come here? Um, And so they were just very surprised that there was even any interest from outside of their little towns um, of people of uh, from, from the United States in particular. Um, but I definitely, yeah, learned a lot. Yvonne is a wealth of knowledge. Um, as Phil was saying, he's is a historian. He has a ton of books. He also uses a lot of um, oral history. He met with old brewmasters uh, and who remembered, you know, maybe they were in their 20s when they were working at one of these Saison uh, breweries. So he gleaned a lot of information simply by word of mouth from these brewers because a lot of these styles or a lot of these beers, that they might not have been written down as recipes because it wasn't an industrialized beer, um, a lot of the history was lost because there wouldn't have been treaties on these beers. They simply would have been, you know, the farmer, brewer farmer would have told his uh, apprentice, this is how you make it. And then it would get, just get passed down by word of mouth. So Yvonne did kind of a deep dive into that with the history of it all. Um, and like I, said, I, I just learned an immense amount and was, was quite happy to be able to be involved in the project with this, even in my slight little way. That's great. I'm so glad you're on too. So Phil, back to back to you now. So just tell us about so Two Roads has opened area two and you have a new beer table to our. Tell us tell us about those things. Okay, so uh March of last year, 2019, we opened up Area Two, which is a separate facility, but uh just about twelve hundred feet away from um from the edge of the two roads building. Uh, necessarily a separate facility because it's about wood aging and uh, mixed fermentations, including, you know, any number of yeast, wild yeast and bacteria that we want to keep out of the clean facilities. So uh, a separate building was necessary. Um, it is not, the uh, brewing these types of beers is not entirely new to the Two Roads history at all. In fact, before we actually open two roads we while we we're you know building out the space we were working with uh, local professors trying to isolate uh, wild yeast from our property and from the surrounding area um, and in our first year of operation we established a barrel aging facility in a separate building uh, the property that, that we bought is a, a 
at the time it was a 102 year old factory building and so it's a sprawling six acre space and there are numerous buildings throughout so we we started a barrel aging facility or an operation just for fun uh, because I wanted to do it in a separate building and isolated our first wild yeast in 2013 uh, during Hurricane Sandy, as it turned out. And, you know, the, the, the lore is that perhaps it blew in from some far away place. Um, but we used this. This is one of the yeasts that we use. And we also captured another yeast um, from our property that we use in Table Terroir, which is a beer that I, uh, I mentioned that I would be sampling this evening. And uh, Table Terroir is like our house ale at Area 2. And you can only get it there uh, until recently. We started running a curbside um, beer-to-go operation at Two Roads, and we're offering table terroir amongst uh, really uh, the full breadth of all the Area 2 stuff that we do. So Area 2 is about experimental brewing, and it's it's um, related to Two Roads, yet separate in a lot of ways. And... You know, we have uh, lots of barrels and wooden tanks and stainless steel tanks, so we, we run the gamut, but everything that we do there is at a minimum a mixed fermentation beer. But uh, specifically, Table Terroir is brewed from 100% Connecticut ingredients. So all the malts, which is, uh, you know, barley and wheat, are grown in Connecticut, all the hops are grown in Connecticut. And to me, the most interesting part of it is that the yeast that we use to ferment it, uh, which we call GB2, we isolated on our property. And it is a, a yeast like no other that I've experienced, but it, it exhibits a very much a farmhouse type character. So it's, it's, very, it's a, a super attenuative yeast. Um, I suspect it's in the diastaticus family, so super ferment, you know, super attenuative and fruity and spicy, um, really nice character. But the the table terroir is a three point eight percent table ale, so it's one of these beers that definitely harkens back to the original intent of a farmhouse ale, something that would be dry, refreshing, uh, and most importantly, low in alcohol. Uh, you might have referenced Tommy Arthur talking about, you know, drinking one after a hard day in the sun. Uh, in reality, I think people drank these beers all day long while they were working in the fields. So they had better be low in alcohol so that they could be, you know, remain productive. So it's kind of within that spirit, we, we created this beer, Table Terroir. Well, I, I like that when I saw the Table Terroir uh, beer that you guys sent us um it's very cool because yeah the the range of the alcohol level you know this idea you had written about super saisons i think that th th there's a lot of misunderstanding about it and one thing for me i'm gonna get back to what you're doing but i noticed you know five six years ago there are a number of newer breweries that opened and they were talking about their saisons but of course with the market they ended up making ipas and pilsners um, so I'm just really happy to see that you, you've kind of settled on this table beer style. And that's what I want to talk about, that table beer style. That seems to me what the farmhouse beer would have been, right? And that's what you said, too. Three point something percent. And honestly, three point something percent might have been considered on the strong side, you know, back then. It came in print from something Yvonne um, had referenced, but apparently... Each farm worker was given a ration of roughly nine liters of beer per day. So that's, you know, roughly a case of beer as we know it, you know, a case of 24, 12 ounce bottles. That was your daily ration. So, you know, it had better be fairly low in alcohol for you to be able to, to you know, just to, to function. It sounds like what some of the guys in my kitchen used to drink every night. So, <laughs> we all... So, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, you know, we're going to just take a short break. We'll be back in a minute on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. This episode is brought to you by Square. 
We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. Learn more at square.com slash go slash beer sessions. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. We're talking with Phil Markowski of Two Roads and Area Two Brewery in Connecticut, the author of Farmhouse Ales and B.R. Roya from Shelton Brothers Imports and Anthony Accardi of Transmitter. So let's go to questions. Um, you know, I, I highly recommend getting the book, Farmhouse Ales. I've learned a lot from it. Um, and all, all of the brewers and beer people here have beers and sites, Shelton Brothers, Transmitter. Um, there's a lot of great product out there. I'm drinking right now, I'm drinking uh, Transmitter Harvest 7, uh, Anthony, which I got at Carmine Street Beer. We're trying to support a lot of the uh, local bottle shops right now. In New York City, that's where I am. Um, so, Anthony, tell us what you're drinking, and then I know you had a good question for uh, Phil. Uh, yeah, um, I have uh, what I think of as a, a American take on uh, saison with um, Saint Adarius um, uh, saison Bernice. Um, you know, delicious, light funkiness, uh, a little bit of bright acidity, super drinkable, um, very approachable. Um, tastes it tastes really good right now. I haven't had I haven't tried had a bottle of this in probably a year, so um, super excited to open it. Um, and but my question to you, Phil, is uh, you know, uh, farmhouse sales written written probably in two thousand two two thousand and three, published in two thousand and four, and I'm curious like what you think. You know, it's a different world, um, more so today than even two months ago. But uh, aside from that, um, what do you think has changed in terms of both the production side of Saison here in the U.S. as well as, like, do you think there are big differences in uh, on the consumer side of, of the, you know, people drinking Saisons? Well, um uh, a very good question, Anthony. And uh, you know, there's God. Where do I where do I begin? But you know, the thing that comes to mind mostly on the production side is that you know here in the states, where arguably most of uh, the changes occurred regarding really all beer styles in general, but particularly farmhouse. You know, there's so many more interpretations here, and kind of the I'd say the biggest thing that that has become a standard ingredient, if you will, is from, from the time I researched the book, which was 2003 and 2004, is the use of Britannomyces as, as kind of a standard now. And, you know, it's a case of what's old is new again. And it has, you know, really is impacted more than the farmhouse family of styles it's it's kind of everywhere. Brett's being used um, as as if it were something brand new. Um, but I I have to think way back when, Brett appeared in any beer that was stored for any amount of time. It, it became part of the feature, whether it was a British IPA, uh, British Porter, which were famously known for that that characteristic, or a farmhouse ale, or even a lager for that reason for that matter if it were stored for any period of time you know back in the day before people understood what uh you know the, what hardcore sanitation was they might have understood basic sanitation but 
just not, you know, really understood the long-term impacts of uh, lax or just cursory sanitation. So to me, that's the biggest thing that has changed on the production side. You know, when I researched the book, there were not examples that I could think of. Um, maybe Brasserie Vapour was, was one that had bright in it because, well, if you've ever seen the place, you would you would understand why. But, um, you know, it's, it's, just, it's now become a standard thing where it wasn't when I was researching the book. And that's, you know, I think when way back, I'm going back 100 years, and this really applies to all sorts of beer styles, you know, brewers began to gain more knowledge about about um, microbiology and realized that uh, the, the, the thing to strive for is single-strain purity. So you have this single strain of yeast, and that's what you strive for. You don't want anything else in your, in your pitching yeast, and that's what people, that was the, the, the message people had, and that's what they, you know, tried to be disciplined about is keeping their yeast absolutely clean down to a single strain, and you can still make some very interesting beer that way, but um, you know the new dimension of Brett, which is often unintended. Um, you know it 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 got in there and it got into it was able to ferment beers further, so it it just got in there. That was just the reality of it. And now we're doing it purposely to add extra dimension. It certainly fits in with the profile of a farmhouse or a saison. You know, something that's that's super attenuated and fruity and refreshing. So the advent of Brett as a standardized ingredient is probably the single most important or single biggest change since I researched the book to today. And then on the consumer side, um, from my own personal experience, I've found that, you know, trying to market something called Cezanne to... Um, you know, people who are not aficionados, so people who are interested in craft beer and want to try new and different things, but, you know, don't know uh, the full vocabulary, don't know all the styles, just sort of, you know, is somewhat adventurous. I found that the term Saison is intimidating to people. They don't know how to pronounce it. Uh, they're afraid to say it. It doesn't sound um, right to them. So hence the 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 more recent turn to a kind of, at least in the States, the, the blanket farmhouse terminology. Uh, people in the U.S. tend to understand that more and kind of gravitate that toward that more. I think flavor-wise, the, the profile-wise, it's a crowd pleaser. You know, people like the, the refreshing uh, kind of austere quality if you look deeply, there's they're plenty complex, and you know often people don't know how to communicate that, but the, it's a crowd pleaser. So it's been a mixed bag. It's been it's been hard to to train people on what's new and interesting about this style when you're in a tidal wave of IPA. IPA is just everywhere and that's all people want. It's a rare person, but it still happens, who comes up to me and says, you know, I'm kind of getting burnt out on IPAs. What else do you recommend that I try? And a farmhouse ale is tends to be the first thing I turn them on to, simply because it, it it's, it's a flavor profile you really can't not like. You know, it's not going to be too hoppy for somebody. It's not going to be too bitter for somebody. Um... You really can't argue with its profile, which is to me very alluring still. Um, so it's. I, I hope that was a, a sufficient answer. It, it's great, and I, I see that too. The the farmhouse style seems to be a, a catchphrase for everything, um, in a good way. You know, our friends and and BR, the Shelton Brothers friends. Um, it's Garden Path Ferment in uh, Skogit, Washington, right, BR? Yes. They're, they're doing farmhouse ales, and our friend at Plan B Farm Brewery up in the Hudson Valley, he's doing them. Um, and they're not calling them saisons, I don't think. Uh, BR, anyone else that you, in Gesture King, who else have you worked with in the States that is making a farmhouse-style ale? Uh, well, I think you have to mention Gesture King, who, you know, they're they're trying to be a true farmhouse brewery now, you know, with their 
using native yeasts uh, and trying to use uh, native products as well, local products. Um, and they're definitely, you know, Jeffrey Stuffings is definitely influenced by the more uh, European uh, word for or style of farmhouse ales, fairly dry, um, effervescent. Um, Anchorage out of Alaska does their own kind of twist on farmhouse. Uh, I think, and then of course, you know, Ron Jeffries and Jolly Pumpkin, his are a little bit, little different in terms of the, the open fermentation and the barrel aging, but still, still a hue towards a classical bent, um, and, and very balanced and approachable. Um, and, uh, you know, like many of these Saison and farmhouse styles, you know, done correctly, they're, they're wonderful pairings with food because of their effervescence, you know, have so much going on. And it's something, you know, aside from, as Phil is saying, you know, some of these big IPAs, you can only drink so much, but um, with a, with a farmhouse or a Saison, that's not, if it's not particularly, if they're not too high in alcohol, uh, they keep evolving in the glass. You can keep drinking them. Um, they're even better at uh, cellar temperature as opposed to very cold. So there's a lot going on, a lot to keep you interested and engaged. Um, I know many years ago, Anthony, we talked about um, you really believed in making your beer slow, slower, especially slower than a lot of the new uh, new breweries were turning out IPAs and things. Um, yesterday we were talking, you told me about your wart making with, with, with your assistant, Ian. Just talk us through the process you guys are doing each week of making wort and then how that kind of becomes the base for the beers that you're making um so we uh you know wort we um we're limited by size essentially so uh and by by time um with our bottle conditioning and the way we do it one of one of our imperatives is making sure that the beer is really left in the tank for the right amount of time before we package it uh we can't afford to have leftover sugar sitting in the beer that then gets in the package and causes um overcarbonation or other problems so um you know, we fill, we basically like fill the tanks and then, uh, a fast beer for us from start to finish is probably 10 weeks, meaning from the day we make the day we make wart to the day we can sell it. And, uh, that's in the world of IPAs, obviously that's on the order of probably eight times slower than an IPA can be made or is being made. Uh, you know, uh, but that's part of what we decided was our program and we're sticking to it essentially. Uh, the, um, uh, so you know, wort production happens, we don't brew every day. We simply don't have enough tank space to do that. So uh, it tends to come in fits and starts, you know, we'll can a bunch of beer or bottle, we bottle today, actually, we hand bottled uh, a funky beer that doesn't go into cans today. And uh, we'll move some beer around getting ready for cans in the next week or so or 10 days. And then from there, you know, we'll start filling those tanks back up, um, partly uh, with seasonality in mind, uh, partly with uh, yeast management in mind. Uh, you know, we probably have about 15 yeasts that we juggle um, as, as standard operating procedure. So a lot of times the schedule is dictated by a yeast that needs to to be used, to be refreshed, essentially. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's complicated being small. Uh, we don't do flagship beers, so there's no one beer right now that we make consistently um, or have consistently on a, for offer. You know, we have families of beers, and we try to represent those across the board. So that's the other part of the equation is... Um, how things are selling and what's being what are, what are people liking the right now today and what are they looking for is it low abv or high abv or are people asking for dark beers or roasty beers or so you know it's a complicated dance matrix uh as a, as such a small brewery 
And, and that's, that's great, Anthony. I know now that you guys have, once all this is over, but you've moved into Brooklyn Navy Yard, I'm sure that in the next year you're going to have so much more interaction with customers and um, you're really going to learn a lot. So congratulations on, on you know, opening in, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Um, Phil, so I don't know if it was a result of your book or just how brewers are in the States. It seemed that a lot of people were taking stabs at Saison's for a while, but about seven or eight years ago, um, a few brewers I knew were making grisettes. So tell us the story of grisette from your book and um, anything else you want to say about it. Uh, sure. I mean, the, there's, again, use the term style loosely, but the grisette type beers, uh, the Again, a little bit that's known about them, a lot of conjecture here, a lot of, you know, reading tea leaves. But um, what it is, the name derives from um, the fact that it was given to, you know, quarrymen that were covered with a, you know, by the end of the day or part of the day were covered in this fine dust from, from their work. And they were given uh, a ration of of uh, beer, at least were you know as the the story goes, served uh, glasses of beers. They emerged out of the quarry by young women dressed in uh, with gray smocks. So uh, you know it's don't know if it's true, but it, but it, it's it's the story that I've heard. So they you know whether this was a markedly different beer from what was being sold as a saison or sold as um, you know, general farmhouse beer. I don't know, but it was popularized as as maybe something that was a little bit lower in in alcohol and maybe had a higher percentage of malted wheat. And back in the day, in that time, raw wheat was a much more common ingredient in in brewing. It was, you know, just widely available. And malted wheat was considered something new. And uh, this is something also that, that Yvonne had um, supported in that, it, that a grisette was somewhere between 20 and 25% malted wheat as opposed to the much more commonly used raw wheat. So there were some differences there. Um, but like a lot of things, I suspect, you know, marketing, what would pass as marketing in the 19th century, um, is, is at least as much um, to credit or blame, if you will, for you know for the perceived difference in in a grisette versus a a saison. Um, so that's I mean that's my take on it, and I I hope I'm not bursting your bubble by by kind of uh, you know reducing the the difference to perhaps a marketing angle, but. I think that that is definitely a factor. Didn't, no, that's very helpful. PR. I was going to say, didn't Phil, didn't you brew a grisette in collaboration with Yvonne? Wasn't what that the Brothers in Farm was? Yes, it was. And, and that's, you know, his, this was after the book came out that he, uh, after Farmhouse Ales came out, that he brought this to my attention, that he had done some research and found that, that grisette was made uh, interest, interestingly, with malted wheat as opposed to raw wheat, which is much more commonly available and uh, commonly used up until that time. So sort of, the, I guess, a, a, an exotic ingredient. And again, he had he had solid information that said that the, it was generally between 20 and 25 percent. So, yes, it was it was. Um, something we did as a, as a collaboration together and other sort of artistic license we took with it translated into what we called brothers and farms where we used our own yeast cultures, did split the batch in half, did, did a fermentation with our own yeast. Yvonne uses his, his yeast, which he's, um, you know, only under water bordering might he reveal what the source is, but, um, so that's a deep, dark secret to him, which is cool because there are no brewers these days who, who have that. 
And then we used our GB2 yeast, which was this uh, yeast that we captured on our property at Two Roads. Fermented the batches separately and then combined it in the end. It was a fun project. Um, you know, I love any excuse to, to work with Yvonne or, or go see him. Um, and soon we'll be plotting our next uh, collaboration because uh, we've both been busy opening up new breweries and... Um, you know, when the dust settles on this current situation, I'm sure that we'll touch base and get something new going because, uh, you know, just the, we're, we're kindred spirits and, um, you know, this is uh, it's what we do. Phil, that, that's great, and thank you so much. And now that we're talking about it, with your beer table terroir, I know our friends at uh, Beer Table in Grand Central in New York City had done a number of collaborations called uh, Beer Table Table Beer, I think table beer kind of kind of fits um, for for those types of beers, especially the low alcohol. Um, Br, you want to wrap wrap it up? Anything else you want to say before we close out? Uh, only that I'm I, if I have to join you here, I'm very happy because otherwise I should have been in Belgium and France this week. We were doing our Shelton Brothers Insider tours uh, to Belgium and France. We did we launched the first official one uh, with the public last May. Uh, today we would have been visiting uh, Blogy and also also uh, Oberon in, in the north of France, who does kind of a saison beer de garde hybrid, which really shows like that farmhouse sales in that region um, were very interchangeable. Um, tomorrow we would have been visiting with Yvonne at De La Seine and seeing his new brewery. So I'm I'm very sad I couldn't make that, but happy to talk with uh, Phil and Anthony and you, Jimmy. Thanks, Bjorn. Anthony, anything else you want to say before we close out? Uh, thank you know as always. Thanks for having me. Um, come to the brewery and let me turn you on to various saisons. You know, and this is great. We're going to have so many more uh, shows like this. I want to give a big shout out to the crew, our producer Dylan Hoyer, and all the engineers, including Matt Patterson at Heritage Radio Network, who are keeping uh, this going during COVID. We're doing remote recordings. Um, I'm talking to you, Phil. Are you in Connecticut? I am. Yes. Yeah, and BR is in Brooklyn, and Anthony's probably in... I'm in Greenpoint. Yeah. So we're all over. But um, that's really it, guys. Thanks so much again. Thank you to Phil Markowski, Two Roads and Area 2 Brewing, uh, BR Williams, Shelton Brothers, uh, Anthony Accardi, Transmitter Brewing. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.